Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. So I received this uh, email from Edward a couple of days ago. I got in touch with him right away. Part of the email reads... Waiting for food hampers from Food Bank. Haven't had a regular meal in six days. Snippets here and there. Thank goodness for my kids. They've had us over for dinner a few times this week. Edward, it's so disturbing to read your email. And then I received an email that I read at the beginning of the program from another listener. And I'm starting to see this more and more with people stepping forward and saying, I just have to tell somebody what it's like. I just have to tell somebody what food insecurity, that's the term they like to use, politically correct term, what food insecurity is. Edward, thanks for joining us. Did you ever expect to be in this position that you're in now? Yeah, you know, quite honestly, Roy, no, I never did. Uh, my wife has been a regular uh, volunteer at the food bank, uh, and uh, we've been involved in trying to be the, the part of the solution uh, over over many years, and uh, and now we're, we're 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 we need to be the recipient of it. It's it's I don't know. It's just a little bit surreal, almost. And you are working. Yeah, absolutely. We're both working. She works. I work. Uh, we we don't make like we do. We do okay uh, when it comes to to uh, to to income level. Uh, we are are in the in the median average for for our our region. Uh, it, it's just the other day I went to a uh, local grocery store, uh, picked up 11 items, 11 items, half of a grocery bag for $77. Yeah. I saw your email, saw the list and, and, uh, and, and you're right. <clears throat> excuse me. You're right. That, um, your, your employer gives away some food on a regular basis and you're right. Yeah. This has been a major part of our diet. And when people say, well, how come you can't make it work for you? There's some people will say that. I hope not many, but but also you point out we've had to pay double for gas, more for mortgage, obviously more for food. You had to um, get a new roof, a new furnace, and all of these things add up, and you find yourself with a finite amount of money, but you have hunger and you have a need to eat, and the food prices are going up because of inflation, and you find yourself in the situation that you're in now. Let, let me ask you this. I know something about not having food. I don't want to bore people, but I've said this before, that I live homeless, when I was 14, 15, and 16, and there were often days where there was no food in the fridge. So I, I get it, but it's been a long time. What is it like for you to to not have a regular meal for six days in a row? I mean, just tell me. Well, I mean, what is it like? It's uh, well, it's it's not having a regular meal. Uh, it's trying to. Uh, look through the cupboards and find out how you can create a meal from from what you you do have from what scrimps and 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 minor things. I, I mean, I'm lucky that my employer uh, provides a bowl of fruit every week, so we brought that home 
or I brought some of that home and they provide a bowl of fruit for the entire floor. So I'll, instead of grabbing one or two, I would grab four or five, and then that would provide, uh, help to provide lunches for the week. Uh, living on, on, on canned food. Uh, it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's not entirely out of the ordinary, I guess. It's, it's, it's been not just been, uh, this week or last week or the last month it's been a year of this yeah your food bank couldn't have a hamper for you for seven days and you wrote that's seven days of figuring it out figuring out what you can and when you can eat this isn't a country that is a first world nation that is an agricultural certainly has a large agricultural base we shouldn't be having edward and our other um listener who sent the email and millions of Canadians trying to figure out, what am I going to do about food? It should not be happening. It should not be happening. What's, uh, what's, in the, I mean, what's in the immediate future for you? you? You also wrote in your email that you have a concern that you may have to sell your house. Uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it sits in the back of your head there that, you know, uh, the, the only source of uh, immediate emergency income I have is to sell my house. Um, the dream of owning a house, uh, I'm hoping it's not slipping through my fingers. Um, I've, I've finally achieved that dream at, at, I guess, 45 years old. And now I own my house and I'm hoping I can keep it. Uh, we, we did have to default on a mortgage payment just so that we could, so that we could eat. Uh, that said, we were able to get caught up, but, but the only way we were able to get caught up is from this help from the food bank. And, you know, quite honestly, Roy, it's embarrassing to, to, and I know it shouldn't have to be, but it is embarrassing to have to have to go and and get this help when it's, when, when, when we need it. Uh, and I shouldn't be faced with this. I shouldn't be faced with, with a $77 half bag of groceries like that. $77 would have bought us three bags of groceries two years ago. So, you know, we've been talking about the Canadian air crew, which is being held in the Dominican Republic for months now. We've covered this story. And this Canadian air crew is facing death threats. They've faced death threats from prison gangs. Now, the video, we understand, has been discovered, which clearly establishes that the air crew did nothing wrong. They've been accused of smuggling drugs when it was the crew which reported suspicious packages aboard their Pivot Airlines chartered jet. It was the crew which alerted the RCMP in Canada to the presence of the packages of the illicit drugs, and it's the Pivot Airlines crew which has been imprisoned, again threatened with murder by prison gangs, and the Canadian government has done essentially nothing to assist this Canadian crew. I've spoken with Pivot Airlines CEO Eric Edmondson repeatedly about the detention of his flight crew and the threats they face, as well as the Canadian government's apparent indifference to the situation. Mr. Edmondson is back with us, as is Raymond Hall, former Air Canada 767 captain and lawyer, former president of the Air Canada Airline Pilots Association. Eric, uh, thank you for coming back on. I wish the uh, the news were better. I wish by now, I mean, it, it should, it, it just makes sense that by now, given what we know, your crew would be back in Canada. 
Oh, you're right, Roy, and, and thanks for the continued interest. It, it really is quite astonishing that these people are still being uh, detained and, and not able to return to Canada after, as you said, reporting you know what they found to be a suspicious package to two police forces, one in Canada, the RCMP, who have done nothing to help, and the uh, the, the Dominican police, who all, all they did to help was uh, throw our people in jail and uh, and and fail to investigate further. And your crew did not try to take off. They didn't take the plane to the end of the runway and say, let's get out of here. They reported what they suspected immediately, correct? Yeah, absolutely. They were doing the normal course of pre-flight preparations. A mechanic which travels with the aircraft on all international charters uh, discovered uh, suspected contraband. He informed the captain within minutes. They had informed our Toronto Operations Centre, and uh, you know, within two or three minutes of that all happening, the RCMP was already on the phone, and, and so was the Dominican police. And that's uh, you know, some hour before departure. Yeah, this was in April. April fifth, yes, sir. April fifth, chronologically, and I just gave a bit of an overview. Chronologically, Eric, walk us through what has happened at the time that they were arrested. They were—I don't know if they were ever charged, but they were released, and then they were detained again. Walk us through what's gone on. Sure, thanks. Uh, so April 5th, they, they were preparing for the flight. They Once the police showed up after they, uh, the crew reported it, uh, the police only took off half of the, the alleged narcotics. Uh, the crew did a supplementary inspection, as, as anyone would, and found more narcotics in the same bay, by the way, just they had to turn their head and look forward instead of aft, and uh, called the police back. At that time, the police came back a little bit more annoyed took the rest of the uh, contraband and left the airport with everything for about four hours. Uh, they came back after four hours with some film crew and, uh, you know, did a very poor soap opera type reenactment of taking drugs off the airplane. And, and you know, who knows what was in the bags when they left versus when they came back. Uh, took our flight crew for six hours without telling anyone, without telling them where they were going, without telling them what was happening. Of course, they only speak Spanish there and our flight crew speaks English. Uh, except for the, the female flight attendant who was taken to a different facility. And they spent six days in jail, and that jail was horrific. They were received death threats, extortion threats. Uh, you know, it was just beyond the pale what they went through. And after uh, a period of time, the judge uh, ruled that they had zero evidence to detain our crew and release them on bail. Uh, part of the conditions of the bail was that they couldn't leave the country, and that's where they, they remain today. Now, this, this video that has surfaced, what can you share with us about the video? What does it show, and when did it appear? So we got the video in, uh, in mid-summer. It took some time to go through it. There's a couple hundred hours worth of footage. Uh, it's airport security video, so nothing. It's not some uh, shady third party. It's actual security video from a security office. Uh, and, you know, once, it's, once we're able to release it publicly, it will... Uh, it will it will really make Canadians think twice about traveling to the Dominican Republic. You know, it's uh, I can't speak to who who the guilty party is, but it's going to be very clear to everyone, and it's certainly not our crew. Uh, separate hotel video shows that our crew was tucked away in bed at the time. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning prior to departure. On two separate occasions earlier in the week, our crew was not in the country. It was a separate crew that, that flew down the night before to, to bring these passengers home. Then it was the crew that delivered them there a week earlier. So we had no one in the country. 
And uh, on two occasions, there were uh, people stalking our airplane, looking at the avionics bay, making sure the aircraft was accessible, working around on the door to make sure they could open it and close it, and driving away. And the Dominican prosecutors, they can't be unaware of this. Well, that's the truly disturbing part. Look, I'm not going to say that there's uh, you know, corruption in the prosecutor's office. I will say there's the corruption within the system. Uh, we can't speak to what any individual was aware of, but they had this video from day one. Um, there's evidence that they reviewed the video early. And I say that because uh, there's also significant parts in the video that's missing. And that had to happen only at the airport office or um, at the prosecutor's office or, or somewhere in between. So the, the file that was retrieved initially is, is much smaller than the file that was sent to us. There's lots of uh, juicy stuff cut out. The reason why we sort of have the smoking gun is that subfolder or that file that we have was mislabeled in the subfolder. I assume that they tried to uh, delete it, but missed that one. And here we are. I'm going to ask for more from my friend Raymond Hall uh, as we go through this interview, this conversation. But uh, Raymond, let me just bring you in for, you. Um, for a quick comment before we take a break. Your former airline captain air canada you flew the big ones the 767 you're a lawyer you understand the legal side of things you understand the aviation side of things what is this what is this entire story and you were on with mr edmondson previously what does this story speak to to you well we're talking about a, a, multi, a multiplicity of uh, factors roy we're dealing with a aviation issue that affects everybody in the world, and not just Canadian airline pilots or flight attendants or mechanics. It affects everybody in the aviation community because flying into this jurisdiction presents a problem. We're dealing with regulatory issues in a legal system that's entirely different from the Canadian legal system. They're, we, they don't have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It, it is uh, the Napoleonic Code that is used there, and it, it doesn't guarantee any rights whatsoever. I think you also have a political system that's gradually being reformed with the new president of the Dominican Republic, but it, that is still languishing in the 19th to 20, early 20th century, where the prosecutors are trained uh, in ways that uh, are are more intimidating, uh, less responsible than it than the uh, equivalent prosecutors and the justice system would be in either the United States or Canada. Eric, you have your crew in the Dominican Republic. There are options the federal government has, and I it's either you or Raymond suggested Canada should suspend its bilateral air transport agreement with the Dominican Republic, and once they stop receiving Canadian tourists and Canadian dollars, they may see the value in returning your crew. But what has the federal government's response been? What have they done positively in this case? Well, Roy, they've done, uh, you hit the nail on the head, they've done nothing, I think you said inert. Um, they uh, they have lots of great words and lots of encouragement, and uh, you know they, they always sound and feel sympathetic. The, uh, the Minister of Transport, I think, is actually a really good minister. He's one of the better ones that I've worked with in, in my 25 or 30 years. I can feel that he is very frustrated with this file. Uh, I sense that he doesn't have the power to do what he'd like to do, which is, of course, uh, you have to at least threaten to stop the, the uh, flow of Canadians to the Dominican Republic. And not only do you have to do it to get our crew back, uh, that would happen. 
but you have to do it to protect the lives of the traveling public. It's absolutely unsafe right now. The message the Dominicans sent to flight crew uh, flying into the Dominican is very clear. It's don't look for contraband. If you find it, don't report it, just leave. And that's extremely dangerous. That's going to put people's lives, that's going to put Canadians' lives in danger. Canada has to go down there and investigate. And until they do, no one should be flying there. Yeah. And when you talked about um, your crew being threatened, their lives being threatened, they were threatened by leaders of prison gangs because these gangs' drugs were not getting to Canada or wherever uh, the flight was supposed to be headed. And uh, and so that's why their lives were threatened. And apparently the Dominican prosecutors didn't really care all that much because they were set to put them back in prison. Um, let, let's look at it from this perspective. Raymond, is there a standard procedure? Well, I hate those two words in, in sequence. <laughs> is there a standard operating procedure for airlines or the travel industry to respond to this kind of situation is it would other governments in the in the world say do exactly what has been suggested and that is suspend the bilateral air transport agreement with the Dominican Republic I think that a short answer to your question is no, there is no standard operating procedure because you're dealing with a diplomatic issue primarily uh, with uh, different uh, countries, different legal systems. And so every case is usually handled on an individual basis. The the question is, how much leverage does the federal government have? I think they have a lot. And, And it's not just the federal government. The federal government can partner with private organizations, particularly with the airlines, with the tour groups, uh, and the uh, uh, the people that, that manage the, the tourist industry there, as well as the other economic trading uh, facilities in, in the country. The, econ- the, the government could exer- exert pressure on several of the interested parties to, sh- to tell them that we need to have this resolved, and we need to have it resolved very, very quickly. And th- so far, they've, as uh, Mr. Edmondson said, they've expressed it in words. In fact, I, I watched an interview where the, uh, one of the senators, the conservative senators, interviewed uh, or challenged the Minister of Transport, and the Minister of Transport said, we will continue to use all available diplomatic and other tools to ensure that we stand up for the rights of Canadians. But the fact is that they haven't actually used all the diplomatic and other tools to stand up for these particular Canadians. Yeah, I mean, they've done nothing. They've done nothing. They're still there. Seven months later, their lives are still under threat. They're, I'm sure their mental health is uh, has to be affected. They're under tremendous stress. Um, Eric, you mentioned that the transport minister has been solicitous, has been supportive, but he can't do what he, I believe, if I understand you correctly, he can't do what he wants to do. So, yes, who's who's in the way? Well, I think it's it's clear. I mean. Uh, one of the more astonishing comments made to our crew by an embassy employee, and I won't throw out them as to their title and, and such, but, um, you know, the, someone who works at the Canadian embassy told, told our crew, look, it's really too bad at least one of you weren't Americans. Because if you were an American, this would never have happened. You wouldn't have been detained. But if you had been detained, you would have been out within 24 hours. And, you know, that just shows the difference in the political will and influence of our global affairs uh, team. Yeah, I just received an email 
Let me just find it here. Give me one second. Um, this is from Lucille. The problem is that our current federal government has lost the respect of other countries. They're not taken seriously. This is an extremely serious situation. What's the uh, what's the health of your your crew, Eric? It's, it's tough days, very tough days. You know, we had some momentum on the file uh, earlier in the summertime before the hurricane came through the island. It looked like they were going to be released. There, there was uh, there was a lot of, of agreement between the prosecutor's office and our lawyers that look, there's there's an impossibility to gather any evidence, uh, new evidence. There's no evidence against them. It's time to wrap this up. Um, that's sort of where it, it stayed after her after the hurricane went through. Really, nothing's happened, and that was extremely devastating for our crew. I mean, they they had some hope. And uh, after that, it really just has been a downhill slide for them mentally, physically. Uh, they are at the end of their ropes. I can, I can honestly say, um, it, you know, we work with them. We provide them uh, counseling and mental health support. And it's getting to a point where they either have to come home extremely soon or they may not be coming home. It's, they're they're at, that, at that stage. Wow. That is so, uh, so deeply... Uh disturbing there's, there's no excuse for ottawa to be inert on this these are canadians seven months seven months in detention uh, also being imprisoned for doing nothing absolutely nothing and, and the stress on uh, i know you don't want to talk about this because it's not your primary uh, objective but in this case but the stress on your business uh, of having you know i mean it has to be considerable on your business too well, of course it is. We're a very small company, and uh, geez, it, it has been tough. We don't focus on it. Our, our 100% focus is getting the crew home safe. But of course, you know you have to you have to pay the bills. It's been an extremely uh, expensive proposition for us, and, and we're happy to pay it because it's our duty and responsibility. But uh, yeah, it's it's extremely tough. And one of the things that makes it even more tough for us is during COVID. Uh, yeah, almost 80% of our flying was for the federal or provincial government and essential service work. You know, we flew the Department of National Defense. We flew the Coast Guard. We flew the RCMP. We did uh, tactical response to some of the, uh, the issues they've had in Nova Scotia. It, you know, when, when, when it was really tough hauled throughout COVID, we were there and we were working with them every day. They'll crew us down there, you know, flew these guys, uh, Department of National Defense and so on. During during the, the peak of COVID, and where are they now? They feel totally abandoned. It's been it's been tough corporately, and it's you know it's just it's ridiculous. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The United States midterm elections, they're going to take place on Tuesday, and they're being very, very carefully watched. There are concerns that depending on the results, there could be unrest in the United States. John Zogby joins us, senior partner at John Zogby Strategies, the national U.S. polling firm. And uh, John and his son have the Zogby Report, Real and Unscripted. And his book is We Are Many, We Are One. John, thanks for coming on the program. 
And you may have to re retitle the book. Um, it is a worry. Um, and frankly, for the first time in my life, it is a worry. And I am worried, of course, about um, November 9th or 10th or whenever we may know the results. I don't think we will on, on Tuesday night itself. There will be a lot more vote counting to take place. On the other hand, in the long term, I'm very optimistic about millennials and, uh, um, and Gen Z, but that's another conversation. Uh, right now, it's the election, isn't it? You know, you and I talked about, I think two years ago, we talked about unrest in the United States and the concerns you had for your country because you'd never seen it the way it is now. The kind of uh, just general unhappiness and the, and, the, and the visceral anger that exists between people who take opposing views of how the United States should be governed. What are the issues that are driving Americans today as you head toward Tuesday, ultimately, what, what, are, what are the issues that Americans are concentrating on? We hear abortion, um, border security, crime, inflation. Is that the core of it, or is there more? Well, uh, under the is there more category, you know, Roy, it, and we've had hotly contested uh, Armageddon-type elections uh, many times. But we, we had always had a common set of issues, and then each side would respond to those issues, uh, and it would get worse. You know, this is what we'll do, and if you elect the other guy, it's we go to hell in a handbasket. But in this instance, we have two different sets of issues, um, two different realities, two different sets of facts backing up those realities. And, and so for the Republicans, what is working for them is inflation as the number one issue that affects everyone and it's behind uh to a great degree so much malaise um and distrust and so on um uh and the republicans figure you know that they can just play defense on that one say it's the issue um and benefit by not being the the party in power uh what also works for for republicans is crime. You know, there's a um, the numbers uh, tell a slightly different story, but the perception is that crimes, particularly violent crimes, um, are at a record high, which they're not. Uh, but it is working for them, as is immigration, which more than anything else is a, a cultural issue and the changing face of the United States. Um, on the flip side, you know, for Democrats, what's working for them is abortion choice, uh, what had been the law of the land for 50 years and something now taken away from them. And then also broader than even the January 6th rebellion, the notion that you have uh, so many candidates, Republicans, uh, who are running for office, over 300, who deny the results of the um you know, the 2020 election. And, you know, there is a fear that uh, Republicans won't accept defeat if they lose. But Republicans also, and I think to some degree justifiably, fearing that Democrats won't accept defeat in, in close elections. Hard to run a democracy, you know, on that basis. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I just came across a couple of articles earlier today. Hillary Clinton didn't immediately concede in 2016. She did uh, within within a day, but it was difficult for them. And she advised Joe Biden not to concede if the election was close in 2020. So this is a, this is something that I don't know if the electorate's used to this, but it certainly is a it's a, it's an issue that's come to the surface. Um, Donald Trump. If I say Donald Trump, what's the Trump factor? On Tuesday, John. Well, clearly, um, the the hope on his part that he is well. First of all, he controls the Republican Party uh, today, as we know it, and and tomorrow as well. He's already positioning himself to probably make an announcement November fourteenth, um, if for no other reason than number one to be able to dominate the headlines, you know, over the next two solid years. Number two to smoke everybody out, including those who ideologically agree with him. But the fact is he controls the Republican Party. Um, and when he does that, uh, he he um, uh, controls the conversation, controls the debate, gets an awful lot of coverage. He looms large. OK, now the, the Democrats don't seem terribly united behind Joe Biden for the last number of years now. I've heard people say, well, Biden's not the guy. He can't take us into 2024. He's too old. He can't handle this job. There just seems to be a faction. Is it a faction within the Democratic Party that doesn't want him? Is, is, that, is that what's going on? Or is there a real movement within, within the Democratic Party that says we shouldn't go into 24 with Joe Biden? There is a movement within. And, you know, basically it's what I have referred to as the consultant industrial complex. Um, of people who have been uh, young and old, but in control of the, um, you know, the strategizing, the um, polling, the negative um, uh, campaigning, the advertising, um, who uh, really in many ways control and dictate, you know, what goes on uh, with the Democratic National Committee and its various subcommittees in, in planning races. They're the ones that create the buzz, and then, um, you know, you have those who may be aligned or hope to be aligned with somebody else who are trying to spread the word. You know, what's odd about that is that um, it never pays to throw the, throw the guy who's in uh, the presidency under the bus. I mean, to some degree, candidates did that to Barack Obama in 2010 and 2014, and it didn't work very well uh, for them. John, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I only have a few seconds left. Can I get a yes or no to this one? If the Republicans win the House and the Senate on Tuesday, does Donald Trump become the de facto president of the United States? Too strong to say probably. Not yet. Earlier in the week, it was quite an interesting news story and it got a lot of attention. It has to do with the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg, which is essentially a super secret, well, it's supposed to be a level four super secret lab. And the question that's been asked repeatedly and for years is what really happened and what was behind the firing of two infectious diseases scientists at the lab in Winnipeg. So the government has been holding that information pretty close to its chest. 
And in fact, the uh, government was ready to take the Speaker of the, uh, the House to court when the Speaker wanted to rule on the opposition getting to see what was in, this, in these files. So this ad hoc committee now is going to find out, we won't, more than likely, but the ad hoc committee is going to find out what's secret. More than 250 pages have been kept secret from MPs, and there's been a lot of redaction in other pages. So uh, we're going to talk about this and uh, more about the situation between this country and China when it comes to that lab and to covid there's still a lot of questions being asked. Elaine Dewar is the author of On the uh, Origin of the De- Deadliest Pandemic in 100 Years. On the Origin of the Deadliest Pandemic in 100 Years. It's an absolutely fantastic book. And if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend that you do so. Elaine, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for asking. Well, I, I just wanted to talk to you again about this situation. It's one thing to, to know that the the MPs, the ad hoc committee, is going to see the, the documentation. And if I called governments and if I called um, spokespeople for, for political parties, I'd get, I know exactly what I'd get, I'd get the news releases. But I want to, I want to ask you, your research was really meticulous. And I have a lot of questions for you, actually, about this whole issue in the, in the book. But let's start with with the lab and the and, and the scientists. What is the big picture story surrounding the Winnipeg lab? Um, what do what do we need to know and think of and understand going in now? For a lot of people, it's something they vaguely remember. They're very interested in it. What should we remember more directly? Well, it is the only level four containment lab in the country. In order to work in that level four containment lab, which is where you handle nasty bugs like Ebola and Marburg and, of course, um, others that make people extremely ill and for which there are no treatments, you require a secret clearance. Um, And for some reason, it appears that from about 2014 onward, when uh, a, a gal named Sangu Chu and her husband Kenning Chang were employed at the National Biog- Microbiology Laboratory, Chang Yu Chu in the Level 4 Pathogens Lab uh, and Vaccine Lab, there were relations with Chinese scientists um, who were doing papers with these two, and clearly uh, some of them had access to the lab. Some of them were students of Sheng Yu Qiu at University of Manitoba, where she and Kenning Cheng also had adjunct appointments. What got really uh, worrisome is that some of those students uh, were apparently members of the Chinese military. And in particular, from 2015 onward, uh, Cheng Yu Q was doing very interesting uh, studies of Ebola, testing an Ebola vaccine created by the leading expert uh, on virology and epidemiology in the People's Liberation Army, a woman by the name of Chen Wei. That relationship continued even after she and her husband were taken out of the lab by the RCMP in the summer of 2019. They continued to publish together until 2021 when when they were fired or officially fired. Uh, and in order to actually create a, a published article that will appear in a major learned journal, one must have access to data. 
And the secret clearance includes access to data. So the question becomes how, even after they were removed, after their secret clearances were withdrawn, did their data access continue on for more than a year and a half? It's mind-boggling. And when when you talk about the People's Liberation Army of China having essentially members, not essentially, really, having members of the PLA inside this level four microbiology lab in Winnipeg, the most secure facility in this country, how does that possibly happen how does how does no one well, how does CSIS not say that's how do they not all say right, right. can't we can't do this we can't let somebody from we can't let officers from the people's liberation army into that lab the question initially was whether they had physical access to the level four there are, are lower level labs within the building um, there's level threes there's level twos So there is some doubt as to whether they were physically in the level four, but really the doubt is absurd because if you're doing work in there, if, if Canada's taxpayers lab is testing a China created vaccine against Ebola with the person who created it, um, it, the data flow is the issue, not just the physical access to the lab, the data flow. Yeah. And and there was also the case of the transfer of Ebola and the Hanapa viruses uh, overseen by, uh, it's Dr. Key, right? It's Dr. Q, yeah. Uh, Dr. Q? Uh, so so though the transfer of these viruses, deadly pathogens, clearly Ebola and Hanapa, uh, were transferred to the Institute of Virology in um, in Wuhan in March of 2019. How does that happen? Well, apparently Canada is a soft touch when it comes to the transfer of important viral samples. Uh, Apparently in in, uh, the United States, they're a little more rigorous about this. But it's not that the transfer is so outrageous. What's important to know is that up until 2018, China only had one level four that was not open, and it was at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The, the, when they finally uh, were able to actually import Ebola to study, uh, they got it from us. And the question is why? And the question is why was there no material transfer agreement uh, along with that shipment? And, and there has been no obvious answer to that. I mean, I looked at the emails that the CBC got under a access to information request. And it's clear that some persons high up in the lab did not think a material transfer agreement was necessary, whereas the director absolutely did. Uh, that director left uh, shortly after all of this material became public and went off to the UK. So we don't know um, what was the thinking, why, why no material transfer agreement, which sets out what the material can be used for and what it can't be used for, makes clear who owns what. I mean, it, it, it was just a very, very strange operation. And when I asked uh, another government scientist who has many years of contact with the Wuhan Institute of Virology whether that was reasonable, he just said, that's crazy. There, there should have been such an agreement. I can't imagine why there wasn't one. Uh, I'm sitting here stunned. Uh, I'm absolutely stunned that, that this happened and that we are now finally in November of 2022 having an ad hoc committee of members of parliament uh, see what has been kept secret for so long 
And uh, and and what, you, you and I, we're not going to know, right? We're not going to find out. The, no, they'll, we're they'll not keep it find us. out. We're not because these guys will be security cleared and they will be subject to confidentiality agreements. And the only material that they're allowed to tell us about will be that which three judges who have yet to be appointed will decide is actually safe for us to know. Well, what they can't do is stop me from worrying about what they're doing. No, they cannot, and they should not. And and honestly, this business of the control of this kind of information is part of a really deep-seated problem in this country, which gets us into a situation in which ministers of the Crown, who are theoretically responsible for everything that goes on in their departments, escape accountability because we cannot know what went on and we cannot know what decisions were made. We can file access to information requests till we're blue in the face, and we will get told, sorry, maybe three years from now, oh, maybe when you're dead, uh, we'll return that information to you. And if we do, it's going to be redacted. I mean, as a country, we have a really, really poor record of, of holding our elected officials to account by getting access to information that's rightfully ours. Elaine, you also write about China's long-term ambition concerning waging and defending against bio-warfare, and uh, Chinese Army Major General enters the picture. How does, that, uh, how does that involve this country, if it does? Well, when China had the first SARS uh, pandemic, so 2003, they had a serious problem that they handled really badly, and it spread to the rest of the world, and there was great opprobrium. And I think they realized right then that in spite of the fact that they'd been sending their very best and brightest out to major schools in the rest of the world, like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale and University of Manitoba, University of Texas, to be trained, that their public health system was still in wretched shape. They also apparently, around that time, decided that biotechnology would be, as I think the quote is, their new strategic high ground. And they considered it important enough that um, from Deng Xiaoping on, that was one of the major areas of government funding of research and development. So it's been on their minds for a very long time. And when you say strategic high ground, that has meaning. Apparently, um, this has continued on to be part of their military doctrine for a very long time. And certainly institutions like the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is state-owned, um, according to the U.S. State Department, have long been host to military researchers who may not be publishing the work that they do there. So the work gets done, and the question is why? And the answer is that China has a strategic interest, especially in the African continent, that the African continent is very much... Uh, a reservoir for certain kinds of bat-borne diseases that cause havoc, Ebola being one of them, and we're, we're going through another Ebola round again in the Congo. Um, and that they, because China is now completely tied up with the rest of the world, uh, having successfully globalized itself, it's only a plane ride away uh, from diseases which are not endemic to China. So it's both protecting their, their domestic population and also protecting their military. Their first military base off China is in Djibouti in Africa. So these are military and domestic concerns, 
and they did not have the capacity to study on their own. And so our lab became sort of their home away from home. Oh, it's good to know that. Isn't it? Yeah, so encouraging. There was also a famous or infamous incident where Canada's relationship with China became and then remained a focal point when the federal minister of health at the time called a reporter's question about COVID having perhaps leaked from a lab in China as racist. And it just seemed to so many people, boy, that's a very defensive position by the federal government of Canada. I, I, can you fit into an answer? Can you fit your thoughts on that into an answer on this question? This is my last question for you. What is your takeaway, Elaine Dewar, from this entire situation that you've described to us that surrounds the, the lab in Winnipeg, the lab in Wuhan, the Chinese scientists, the People's Liberation Army, and the government of Canada? Well, you know, I think it may be that two governments of Canada um, decided to enter into a science and development relationship with China in earlier days when China's aggressive stance, which we are now all so familiar with, was not clear and obvious. And it may be that two ministers or three ministers or four ministers of health signed off on permissions to allow this kind of relationship to go on. They may not have understood exactly who was going to be going in and out of that lab and exactly what kinds of samples we were going to be sending back and forth. But I think in a, in a more naive time, it probably was deemed to be a good thing uh, that Canadian scientists were helping to train and helping to educate scientists in China. Bat-borne diseases um, causing pandemics have happened in China, specifically SARS. And now we're you know, dealing with SARS-CoV-2, which apparently also originated in China. The question of where it originated from is still somewhat open, although I believe it did, in fact, originate from work being done in the Wuhan lab. But that's not proven. It's not demonstrated. I just tell you chapter and verse about why I've come to that conclusion. I think, therefore, a Minister of Health, when asked about the Wuhan Institute of Virology as a possible site of the leak, panicked. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 